time to start. Um, welcome everybody to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy. My name is Christina Mussel. I'm the Deputy Director of the Forum and a Fellow here in the Philosophy Department at LSE. And today's lecture is part of the Forum's European Provocations series. As you might know of, as you might be able to gather from the program, the Forum has various different types of events that we do. And this particular type of event, um, we ask someone, a thinker that we think is a really interesting, challenging thinker in their own right, to present to us a text by a philosopher that has somehow inspired them in their philosophical career or that they feel is of particular significance, particular interest. Um, and so today, uh, Joel Smith will give uh, a presentation on Sartre, on the transcendental Fine. Um, you should have the text in front of you, but I'm told that all the important quotations will also be shown on the screen, so don't worry too much about uh, reading the text. You can take it home, of course, to further ponder it after the event. Um, so Joel is a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Manchester, and he works primarily in the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of psychology and phenomenology. He has a particular interest, not unlike myself, in issues of self-consciousness and consciousness of others, including most recently um, the attribution of emotions to others. And he's also recently co-edited a collection of essays entitled Transcendental Philosophy and Naturalism. So I think um, he'll be bringing a very interesting perspective um, to this text by Sartre. Um, and in particular, he's going to discuss his remarks on the unity, transparency, and impersonal nature of consciousness in both historical and contemporary contexts. And so I won't take up um, more time than this and just hand over to Joe. I uh, look forward to the presentation, and I think we'll have plenty of time for discussion afterwards. Welcome. Thanks very much. Um, well, thanks all very much for coming, and thanks for, to Christina for inviting me. Um, okay. So hopefully you'll all be able to see what's written on front there. That's on the screen. That's mostly just going to be pictures and quotations, a couple of um, helpful things um, to look at while I'm speaking. So um, the first thing to say is, despite the fact that I'm talking about Sartre, I don't consider myself really to be a Sartre scholar. Um, really, uh, my interest in Sartre is uh, um, somewhat amateurish. So I um, first encountered Sartre when I was about 15 years ago when I first started as a postgraduate student uh, at the University of London. Um, and what I first did was I dived straight into Being in Nothingness, which is a very, very big, fat book, um, which I sort of found fascinating because it's full of this big, grand, existentialist uh, material, but it's also really deeply obscure. I found it very difficult to understand. Um, and it wasn't actually until um, after I'd finished my PhD and I was doing something else that I encountered um, these early works of Sartre. So before he wrote Being a Nothingness, he wrote a series of books, um, well, sort of pamphlets in some cases, in this case, um, on really what we would now call the philosophy of mind. Um, they're sometimes referred to as his sort of early phenomenological works. So there's two books on the imagination, uh, there's one book on the emotions, and there's the one that I'm going to be talking about today, which is on self-consciousness. Um, and when I encountered these, I was really excited because they sort of spoke to both my 
interests more generally in the mind and philosophy of mind. But also, they look like they set much of the stage for the later existentialist stuff, such that reading through and working through what um, such has to say in these books was very helpful in trying to understand what I previously failed to really understand in being a nothingness. So um, what I hope to do today is not really present an argument for a particular claim about uh, Sartre or um, the topics that he's discussing, but introduce uh, a number of uh, the issues that he's dealing with here um, and put forward some suggestions on how best to understand what he's doing. Uh, because even though I say that these early books um, were somewhat clearer than being in nothingness, they're still pretty obscure stuff. Um, okay, hopefully you can all see that. Oh, his glasses have come out blue. Um, okay, so... Uh, oh dear, it doesn't quite fit on the screen, but I hope you'll have to guess what the last letter of each line is. So the transcendence of the ego is... Um, on the face of it, a critique of, um, or at least large part of it, and in fact the part that I've given you to read, is a critique of an earlier position which was held by Husserl. Um, but in actual fact, um, Sartre does much more than just critique Husserl's view. He outlines uh, an interesting and original view of his own on um, self-awareness and the nature of the self more generally. Um, and as you'll have seen if you read through this, uh, this handout that uh, you all have, um, he, he throws around ideas really quickly. So he says one thing, and in the same paragraph he seems to be uh, saying two, three, four different things. It's very difficult to follow the, um, the train of thought, and he seems to be assuming lots and lots of uh, knowledge. Um, but I think that if you slow down, uh, go slower than he does, that is, um, and try and work through uh, not just understanding the claims that he's making, but the problems that he's trying to uh, deal with and the questions that he's trying to answer. Um, there's quite a lot to be learnt from this material. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I think that once you do that, you recognise that there's significant contemporary interest in what Sartre is doing in this book. Um, Sartre, I think this isn't really true anymore, but um, certainly there have been periods where Sartre's work was sort of neglected because there was one group of philosophers who thought, well, Sartre talks an awful lot about consciousness, and so that means he's a Cartesian, and really that's a term of abuse in certain sort of, uh, philosophical communities. Um, on the other hand, some people have thought that, well... Maybe Sartre's novels are of interest, but the philosophy is really just too uh, unclear, too uh, badly presented to be of really contemporary significance. And I think that um, that view's been um, sort of overcome, but it's not always obvious exactly why there's um, continued interest in Sartre's work. And hopefully I'll say something um, to make clear why there is... Uh, there's still this interest for contemporary uh, philosophy. In order to understand what he's doing, though, I think it's very helpful to give some uh, 
historical background. So that's what I'm going to do. Very, very quick thumbnail sketch of the problems that Sartre takes himself to be dealing with, the stuff that he's assuming. Um, and as with most philosophical uh, topics, it's really good to start with Hume. Uh, so this is one of the most famous passages in philosophy, uh, and I'm sure many of you will be familiar with it. This is Hume's notorious denial that he's aware of himself through some sort of inner perception or inner awareness. So I'll just read it out. Uh, Hume says, There are some philosophers who imagine we are every moment intimately conscious of what we call our self, that we feel its existence and its continuance in existence. For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble upon some particular perception or other, that's a typo, of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception and never can observe anything but the perception. So on the face of it, what Hume is saying here is that um, when one looks inwards at oneself, one turns one's attention to one's own experience, one's not aware of a thing which is having those experiences. One's just aware of the experiences themselves, what he calls perceptions. Uh, and there's some sort of ironic comments about, well, uh, maybe, maybe other philosophers are different from me in this respect, but really I take it that he's making a general point that um, there is no such thing as an inner awareness of the self. Now, Hume, of course, was an empiricist. And uh, at least in his case, what that means is that he thinks that you only have a genuine concept, or what he called idea, of something, if you've got, in effect, an impression, or what he called an impression, or a perception, um, an experiential state, an experience, um, backing it up. Concepts are drawn from experience. Now, what he seems to be saying in this quotation is that there's no experience of the self. There's, there's an, an, an experience of the different perceptions I might have, but there's no experience of the self, the thing that's having those perceptions. And what that means, given Hume's empiricism, is that there's a problem with the concept of the self. Right? There's an issue about how to understand the idea or the concept that we all have of ourselves. What we seem to be expressing when we say the word I. Um, and that consequence, in Hume's view, leads to a problem. Uh, and here's him expressing that problem. <clears throat> All my hopes vanish when I come to explain the principles that unite our successive perceptions in our thought or consciousness. Um, the thought is something like this, and I'll say much more to explain what's going on here, I think, or what I think is going on here. Um, the thought is that, um, well, I have lots of experiences, lots of perceptions. For example, I'm currently having a visual uh, perceptual experience, the green chairs and room, an auditory perceptual experience, when I'm listening to my own voice and so on. Um, and we ordinarily think that those perceptual experiences are in some way united. But um, it's difficult to understand, given Hume's view, how that can be so. What principles unite 
our different experiences. To see what's going on here, um, consider these two uh, different claims. And this is going to this is going to be the topic of the majority of uh, today's talk. The unity of consciousness. That's really what I just gestured at. Unity of consciousness is this. Any two simultaneous states, conscious states of mind are experienced as being co-conscious or as being conscious together. That's just supposed to be an, sort of an, an intuitive notion. That's the, the, uh, the thought that when I do this, um, I have both a visual experience and an auditory experience, um, and they're had together. They seem to f- form, uh, seem to be parts of some greater whole, an audiovisual experience, if you like. Um, they're unified. Uh, if you can see that at the bottom there, the second claim is this, the individuality of consciousness. Some conscious states are possessed by me and some by you. Um, that is, in this room, there are lots and lots of uh, conscious states, experiences, visual experiences. There are some visual experiences of the back of this room, and there are some visual experiences of the front of this room. Um, some of them are mine, and some of them are yours, and yours, and yours, and so on. Right? Um, what makes it the case that some uh, experience is mine as opposed to yours? Okay? Uh, so it's an obvious fact that it would seem that they are. Right? I have some experiences, you have some experiences. And yours, yours are yours and mine are mine. Um, but there's a question about what um, explains that fact. It's these two uh, uh, notions, the unity of consciousness and the individuality of consciousness, that Hume is saying um, he has difficulty in explaining how uh, they could be. Right? How, how is it that all my and just my experiences are unified in this particular way? Um, why would he have trouble with that? Well, um, here's the thought. It's very natural, and this is something that many philosophers have done, to try and explain the unity of consciousness and the individuality of consciousness by appealing to um, the idea that we have of ourselves, by appealing to our concept of the self. It's Hume's uh, empiricism combined with his claim about there being no inner awareness of the self, um, which makes him... Skeptical of the idea that there's this um, robust, sort of genuine concept of the self. How might one uh, appeal to the notion of the self or the concept of the self in um, trying to explain the unity of consciousness or trying to explain uh, the individuality of consciousness? Well, here are some suggestions that I've stuck on the um, screen here. The first suggestion is this. Um, and this will be, these thoughts will be very familiar to um, what you'll, you'll know, some of you will know where I'm going with this. So um, here's the first thought. I must be able to attach, I think, to any of my conscious states or any combination of them. The idea being this. If I'm in a conscious state, if I'm having an experience of some sort, it must be possible for me to think I'm having that experience. That experience is mine. Uh, or if I think something, uh, if I think that is a green wall, it must be possible for me to think 
I think that that is a green wall. Um, the idea being expressed in that principle there is that um, self, a certain form of self-consciousness is um, a necessary condition of consciousness. That is, in order to be in a conscious state, I have to be able to think of that state as mine. I have to be aware of it. I have to be self-aware. Um, to put it in Kant's terms, uh, the I think, or the concept of the self, is transcendental. What it is to say that something is transcendental is to say, uh, in Kant's terminology, is to say that it's a necessary condition of the possibility of experience. In order for you to have experience, in order for an experience to be conscious and yours, you've got to be able to attach I think to it. But now, if, if you think that that's true, and this is a uh, claim that um, uh, I'll point out who thinks this in it, um, it's very natural to think that the following two things might be true. Uh, two conscious states are co-conscious, they're unified, that you're conscious of them together. Um, if you can not just think, I have this state, I have this experience, and I have that experience, but if you can think, I have both of those experiences. That is, um, when I do this, I have a visual experience, I can see my fingers, I have an auditory experience, I can hear the click. Not only can I think, um, that's my visual experience, I'm seeing that, and I'm hearing that, but I can think, I'm seeing and hearing that. Okay. When you have that in place, you have an account of the unity of consciousness. Consciousness is unified because there's only one I, or self, to whom one is attributing those experiences. Right? That's what it is for consciousness to be unified. Secondly, um, the individuality of consciousness, you might try and explain in the following way. Um, what is it for a conscious... I said some of the conscious states in this room uh, belong to me and some of them belong to you. Well, um, what is it in virtue of which conscious state belongs to me? Well, it's just for me to be able to think of it as mine simply on the basis of its occurring. So simply on the basis of um, the, the, there being an experience of a green wall, I can think I have an experience of, the, of a green wall. I don't need to do any further thinking or any further reasoning to work out whose experience it is and ditto for everyone else in the room um, so the thought is that appeal to this notion of the self uh, gives you some materials with which to explain uh, the unity and individuality of consciousness and that's something that Hume doesn't have a, can't appeal to because he has no um, uh, he, he recognises no legitimate notion of the self um, you may dispute that if you know you're Hume, but I'm going to ignore that. This is Kant's view. Okay, and roughly speaking, some of the things that I've just said, I think, are expressed in this quotation on the screen from Kant. Um, he, sa he says various things. Uh, one of them is this. The thought that these represent sorry, representations given in intuition... By the way, that square bracket probably ought to be behind the word intuition, i.e. experiences... Um, altogether belong to me means accordingly the same as that I unite them in a self-consciousness, or at least can unite them therein. For otherwise I would have as multicoloured, diverse a self 
as I have representations of which I'm conscious. Uh, what does he mean at the end there? Well, he's imagining what it would be like if, per impossible, one were not uh, able to self-ascribe or think as yours all of your experiences. Um, <clears throat> what would be the case would be that, say, we're thinking of uh, experiences um, happening over time. Um, you have one experience, you're able to think of it as yours. Then there's another experience, and you're able to think of it as yours. But there would be no unity between those two experiences. Or suppose you had two experiences at the same time. You can think of the visual experience as yours, and the auditory experience as yours. But if you can't think of those experiences as mine, right? those experiences are mine, then... Um, there's no reason to think that it's the same me. Well, there's no e experiential basis for the thought that it's the same me having those experiences. Experience wouldn't be unified. This is Kant's thought. Now, interestingly though, I will go back to Sartre, Kant thinks that Hume was right about um, the, the inner awareness of the self, in that there is none. So, and that's expressed here when he says, the identity of the subject which I can be conscious of in all my representations does not concern any intuition, roughly speaking, experience of the subject whereby it's given as an object. In effect, uh, Kant says, look, Hume was right. There is no inner awareness of the self. Nevertheless, we can still appeal to the concept of the self, trying to explain the unity of consciousness and so on. Well, why is that? How come Hume couldn't say that? But Kant does say that. Um, the answer is that Kant rejects the empiricism. Okay? So Kant thinks that there are certain core, fundamental, basic concepts that we all have, we all must have. They're not gained from experience. Um, they're preconditions of experience. They're necessary conditions of experience, i.e. they're transcendental. Um, so, um, that position accepts that the self plays this explanatory role with respect to the unity of consciousness, um, but nevertheless denies that there is this introspective inner awareness of the self. All of this sets up um, the, the position that um, Sartre is attacking, which is Husserl's. I'm going to say less about Husserl's uh, because hopefully um, it will be reasonably straightforward given all the stuff I've just said. Um, so Husserl, one complication is that Husserl's view changes over time. Um, his early view expressed in uh, logical investigations uh, was roughly Humean. So he says, this echoing Hume's language, um, I must frankly confess, however, that I'm quite unable to find this ego for ego read I yourself. Um, there he's talking, he's explicitly discussing neo-Kantian views where he's talking about what they call the pure ego. He says, well, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't know what they're talking about because when he introspects, turns his attention inwards to his own experience, he doesn't find one, just like Hume says. Um, later on, though, Hume changes his uh, sorry. Husserl changes his mind and finds it. So uh, he says, for example, this. Um, 
I exist for myself and I'm constantly given to myself by experiential evidence as I myself. Um, I won't bother reading out the rest of that. Um, the idea is, actually I was wrong earlier on, there is this inner awareness of the self by which I am aware of myself as myself. Um, now, at, at that point, Husserl um, also endorses the Kantian idea that it's this notion that we have of ourselves, the concept of the self, that uh, serves to explain the unity and um, uh, individuality of uh, consciousness. The difference, so in that respect, he's Kantian. The difference is with respect to this quotation here. Kant thought that, well, there's no inner awareness of the self Nevertheless, it's legitimate to appeal to the notion of the self in explaining the unity of consciousness. Husserl um, thought, no, 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 we do appeal to the unity of the self, but actually there's this, this inner awareness of the self. Right? So you can think of, this point is sometimes put by saying that um, for Kant, the, the transcendental I or the ego, the notion we have of ourselves, is purely formal. <coughs> it plays this role in determining the structure of our experience, but it's not something which we do, which we itself, ourselves experience. On Husserl's view, that's not so. Um, and this is the sort of package of views that Sartre's going to attack. Right? So he seeks to demolish it. That's the background for all of this, these four pages of Sartre's pamphlet that I gave you to read. Um, so in particular, he's going to try and do two things. One, he's going to argue that it's not true that you need to appeal to the notion of the self in order to explain the unity of consciousness. So he says that um, the, I think the word he uses is that it's superfluous. There's no need to appeal to it, to the, the idea that we have of ourselves. Um, furthermore, he's going to argue that um, if you do appeal to it, you've made a grave error because it's inconsistent with the nature of consciousness to think that there is this inner awareness of the self. Okay. And those are the things that I'm going to go through. I'm going to spend much more time on the first than the second point, um, but I will talk about both. Okay, so finally, uh, to Sartre's material. This, this quotation is on, uh, from the, I think, I hope, all of the quotations I've got on the screen there are on the piece of paper that you've all got in front of you. So, first of all, <clears throat> Sartre on the unity of consciousness. So here's what he says. The object, where he's, it's clear from the context, he's talking about the object of a series of experiences or a number of experiences, is transcendent, or beyond, to the consciousness that grasps it. And it's within the object that their unity is found. Um, there seems to be one claim that he makes. Here looks like another claim. I'll summarize these in a moment. Um, consciousnesses must be perceptual syntheses of past consciousnesses with present consciousnesses. Um, sorry, consciousness. It is consciousness that unifies itself concretely by an interplay of, scare quotes, transversal consciousnesses that are real, concrete retentions of past consciousnesses. Okay, so there seems to be two claims that he's making there. One at the top, 
where he says, roughly speaking, that the unity of consciousness is explained by the object that you're conscious of. And in the second one where he starts talking about past and present consciousnesses and transversal consciousness and so on. Um, so all of this needs some explanation. Um, oh, hang on. Uh, all of this needs some explanation. And in order to helpfully explain it, it's worth making a distinction which I haven't previously made, although I sort of implicitly did earlier, um, between these two things here. Well, I've just been talking about the unity of consciousness. Conscious states seem to be together. Right? I have two conscious states. I'm conscious of the both as being together in some way. But we can distinguish between simultaneous conscious states and conscious states that are separated by time. So conscious states that I have at different times. And the term that's often used for this is synchronic versus simultaneous versus diachronic, um, non-simultaneous unity. So um, the synchronic unity of consciousness is what I introduced at the beginning. That's the phenomenon of simultaneously having two experiences together. When I both see and hear something, these perceptions seem to be encompassed within one overall multi-sensory experience. Okay, so that's at a time, my experiences all seem to form uh, parts of a unified whole, one big experience that's got all these multi different, it is in different sensory modalities. Okay. But um, we can also think about the diachronic unity of consciousness. Um, this is, I briefly alluded to it a moment ago, um, having two experiences flow on one from the other. So, for example, when I see something moving across my field of vision, I, first of all, I see it here, I have an experience of it here, and then here, and then here, and then here, and then there. But it's not as though um, these are all uh, entirely disunified. Um, it see, when, by the time it gets to here, it looks in such a way that it was over here. There's a flow to conscious experience. Right? It's not just one thing after another. Um, one thing seems to lead on to the other, so that each experience that we have seems to be the result of all the previous ones that we had. Um, so the diachronic unity of consciousness here is the difference, this is the, uh, uh, sometimes put um, this way, the difference between having um, a uh, I can't remember the, the words gone out of my head a series of uh, experiences um, just one after the other versus um, an experience of continuity right? of an event as um, uh, continuous from beginning to end. They yes. Try, but, uh, a good example, I think, is that listening to a, a melody or a tune, you retain image of the melody, but what you just actually hear is a succession of succession of notes. Good, and that's the word I was looking for. Also, succession. Thank you. So, uh, the phrase that I was searching for was the difference between a succession of experiences and an experience of succession. So that's exactly right. Um, when you listen to a melody. Each note 
that you hear seems to be, you experience as being in a certain context, right? Um, such that that note would sound different if it had been preceded by a different note. Okay, so that's precisely the thought. Thank you. Um, okay, more on this. So I'm going to go through um, both of these, what Sartre has to say about both the synchronic and the diachronic unity of consciousness, because I think that the two claims that I picked out of that quotation from him, really one speaks to one of them and the other speaks to the other. I think it's helpful to do the apparently more complicated one, the diachronic one, first, though, um, because in actual fact it's clear of what his view is about that, despite the fact that it didn't seem so. Um, so there's, there's a bunch of literature to which um, Sartre is assuming that we have perfect recall um, in this piece of work, which is really Husserl's theory of time consciousness, which is Husserl's account of the unity of consciousness across time, in effect. Um, and there are three basic notions that Husserl... Um, you need to understand uh, in order to understand Husserl's view. And, but in essence, it's very simple. Um, he just says, for any experience at any one time has three elements to it. Um, if you like, a forward-directed element, a backward-directed element, and a, uh, an element which is directed at uh, the, the now, because the forward and backward are temporal notions. So we have what he calls the primal impression, which is consciousness of what's happening now as happening now. So I'm aware of the current event as happening right at this moment. But whenever I've got that, I've also got what he calls a retention, which he also calls primal memory, um, but he thinks differs from um, sort of our ordinary notion of memory, which is consciousness of what just happened as what just happened. Um, and more, somewhat more controversially, he thinks there's this thing called pro-tension, which is like retention but directed towards the future, which is like expectation of what's about to happen next. And again, the notion of a melody is particularly helpful. Certainly if you're listening to a melody that you are familiar with, the experience of it at any one point, according to Husserl, includes both the sound of the tone, uh, the note that's currently playing, and the retention of the previous note, notes, and the expectation or protension of the subsequent ones. Now, um, the way I just described that is all about um, our awareness of the, the objects of experience, the things that we hear, right? The note, or in my example, the visual example, the hand. First I'm aware <laughs> of the hand here. When I'm aware of it here as it moves across my field of vision. The primal impression is of the hand here, but my current experience also includes a retention of the hand being there and a protension of the hand being there insofar as it will continue to have a, uh, a constant trajectory. In addition, though, and this is the important bit for understanding what Sartre's um, talking about, not, a, not only do I retain my... Uh, own, sorry, I have a retentional experience of where the object was. I have a retentional experience of the experience I had when I was aware of the object as being over there. So I'm aware of my current experience as 
following on from a previous one. So at any moment, my experience has multiple objects. I'm aware of what's happening now. I also have this special type of awareness of what just happened. But uh, in addition to that, I'm aware of not just and not only what just happened, but also how I experienced what just happened. That's what Sartre is talking about when he says, scroll back a minute, um, consciousness must be perceptual, sorry, perpetual synthesis of past consciousnesses with present consciousness. It is consciousness that unifies itself um, by an interplay of transversal, i.e. from consciousness, conscious state to other conscious state, um, consciousnesses that are real concrete retentions of past experience. That, he thinks, is all you need to say to explain the unity of consciousness across time or the diachronic unity of consciousness. Um, and notice that you don't need to talk about the self, or so it would seem. Uh, you don't need to talk about the transcendental ego. You just need to say each of my experiences is directed to other experiences of mine, in particular, the ones I've just had. And that accounts for this, the, the, the sense that we have that experience is a, is a flow from one state to the next. <coughs> All right. <coughs> Synchronic unity of consciousness. Um, this, I think, is what Sartre is talking about when he says it's the unity of the object which uh, unifies consciousness. Uh, he says it's the fact that I'm aware of the same object that unifies my conscious states. Um, on the face of it, this is the most difficult point to understand because it seems to be so obviously wrong. Right? It seems there seem to be such obvious counterexamples to this. So... Um, on the face of it, both um, everyone in this room is aware of this cup. That's the same object that we're all aware of, but that doesn't mean that our conscious perceptions of it are all unified in the way in which we're talking about. Right? Similarly, you might think that at least um, you can imagine a situation in which I'm, uh, I pick up this cup and I have a visual experience of it, and I also have a tactile experience of it. But they're not unified, right? Despite the fact that it's the same cup that I'm experiencing in these two different ways. Why would Sartre say that the unity of the object explains the unity of consciousness? It just seems strange, right? It uh, just seems to be obviously not true. Um, here's my suggestion. This is um, adding stuff into Sartre. He doesn't say this. Uh, but I think that there's a case to be made that this is perhaps what he has in mind, given what he says about time, the time consciousness case. Because the time consciousness case, the explanation is, look, um, the, uh, our awareness at any one time is directed towards past experiences of ours. They pick them out or refer to them, represent them. Um, whereas... Um, when he talks about just the unity of the object, he seems um, not to, to say that. He talks about just the object itself. Um, you can read some of the stuff about time consciousness into this claim about 
the unity of the object, and perhaps it makes more sense. So you might say something like this that I've got up on the screen there. Perhaps we should say that experiences are unified in virtue of not being just directed at the same object, but being given as directed at the same object. Or the fact that I'm aware of my experiences as all directed towards the same object. So um, the thought here would be this. Um, when I uh, both um, see and hear um, that event of my fingers clicking, um, what I see, it looks like fingers clicking, but it also looks like the event I can hear. Similarly, when I hear it, it sounds like fingers clicking, but it also sounds like the event I can see. So the thought would be that each of those experiences refers to the other one. So the unity of experience, or the unity of consciousness, would be gained by, just like in the time case, having experiences all uh, refer to each other or be directed at each other. Um, and that, I think, perhaps is the, the best way of understanding Sartre's view on the, the unity of consciousness, perhaps. Um, there is a problem there, though, and much of what else he says in the, in the section that I gave to you um, sort of addresses this type of issue. Because if I say um, um, that uh, the, uh, this looks like the event that I can hear and it sounds like the event that I can see... I've used the word I in describing how my experiences seem to me. Okay? Um, so you might think, well, hang on a minute, that's just the transcendental ego stuff again, right? That is appealing to the notion of the self that we have, this idea that I'm aware of things as being mine. Right? I'm, uh, I'm aware of what I can my visual experience is picking out the same thing as I can hear. So that sounds as though he's appealing to the notion of the self in a way in which I, he was supposed to be showing that we could account for the unity of consciousness without doing that. Um, I think that that's a serious problem, uh, not just with the, what I have on the screen here, the synchronic unity, but also potentially the unity of consciousness across time. I take it that Sartre's answer to this is what he spends a lot of this um, uh, uh, section in the book doing, um, is trying to distinguish between what he calls reflective and pre-reflective self-awareness. So the idea he has is that, well, um, look, there's no awareness of the self when I am aware of my own experiences. There's just an awareness of the experience. But, um, though my, I am uh, pre-reflectively, as he puts it, self-aware. That is, I, ha I do have a sort of kind of self-awareness, um, but it's not to be understood on the model of um, an awareness of an object or an awareness of a thing, the self. 
Rather, we can understand this as simply a tacit or... Um, it's difficult to know quite what word to describe because he never really tells us. Um, a tacit or a, a, a non-focused um, on, non-attended to uh, awareness of myself as having that experience. Um, the thought then would be that, well, look, in appealing to the notion of the self, um, in explaining the unity of consciousness, we we do have to appeal to uh, pre-reflective self-awareness. But that's not the same as this inner awareness of the self that Husserl um, thinks we have. Now, I don't pretend that that's either especially clear um, or especially convincing. I, I myself find it very difficult to exactly pin down what it is that Sartre thinks uh, the, the pre-reflective self-awareness is. Um, nevertheless, um, I take it that that would be his response to this problem. All right. We're nearing the end. I've got two more, two more topics to cover, and these are going to come pretty quickly, um, particularly this one. What's Sartre's account of the individuality of consciousness? Right? What accounts for the fact that some are mine and some are yours, of the conscious states in this room? This is, I think, all he says. This, this is the totality of his view of this. Um, Consciousness constitutes a synthetic individual totality entirely isolated from other totalities of the same kind. What does he mean? Well, I take it that the reason why he says very little about this is because he thinks it just a very neat little account of the individuality of consciousness falls out of what he said about unity. That is, if you think of all of my conscious experiences as... Um, referring to some other of my conscious experiences so that what, when you think about all my experiences that I'm having now and had just a moment ago, they're all um, referring to each other. So my experience now seems like it follows on from an experience I just had one moment ago. Um, then we can say that, look, the totality of my conscious experiences is just um, that sort of set of experiences that all bear these sort of internal uh, um, relations of directedness to each other and yours is another uh, set that all bears a series of internal relations of directedness towards each other um, and there are no um, uh, experiences that as it were cross persons so he says that um, he, he says various somewhat obscure things about the idea that consciousness is absolute um, uh, it's self-sufficient in the sense it doesn't require there to be uh, it doesn't well, it doesn't allow there to be um, these uh, representations of others' conscious states in just the same way that um, my experience seems to uh, pick out my previous one. Right, my, my experience doesn't seem to follow on from yours to flow on from yours. The the flow of experience across time um, is. Uh, only retains the explanation of that uh, only allows you to talk about the retention of my past experiences that wasn't very clearly put so I'm going to move on um, ok but I think he has much less to say about that for that reason he thinks it just follows from what he said previously that was all the stuff 
which is the vast majority, in fact, this is the last slide, the vast majority of what I'm going to talk about, that was all on unity and then a little bit on individuality. That was supporting this idea that he has that appeal to the transcendental I, or the transcendental ego, is uh, not necessary, or is, as he puts it, superfluous. Right? It's not motivated. Um, but he also thinks that, well, there's positive reason to think that there could be no such thing. Uh, and that's um, what he has to say about transparency or translucency. <coughs> so he says this. Uh, everything is, in consciousness is clear and lucid. The object lies opposite it in its characteristic opacity. But consciousness, for its part, is purely and simply the consciousness of being conscious of this object. Um, so what does he mean when he says that, and why does he think that this shows? As he puts it, that um, uh, the, the transcendental ego, he says, would be the death of consciousness. Right? He uses really dramatic terms. Um, well, this really just relies on a number of points that I've already covered, plus an extra claim. Um, so I mean, if there's one thing that all phenomenologists agree on is, is the idea that um, experience or consciousness is um, intentional or has intentionality. That is, uh, it's directed towards things. Whenever I have a conscious state, I'm conscious of something. So uh, when I uh, have a visual perceptual experience, there's something that my visual ex perceptual experience is of. And so on. For all types of um, conscious state. Um, this bit down the bottom about um, consciousness is pure, purely and simply the consciousness of being conscious of this object. That, that extra consciousness of is the pre-reflective self-awareness bit. But we can ignore that for the time being. The extra claim that Sartre adds in here is that that's all there is to consciousness. There is no further uh, nature to consciousness apart from its being directed out towards other stuff, right? towards some object, being of something. So when I see something, my experience is of something. Um, when I hate something, my experience is of something. And so far as hate, isn't it? You can have an experience of hating something. Um, when I desire something, my desire is of something. And so on. Um, But there's no further nature of consciousness, right? It's just this purely outward-directed uh, state. Well, state is an unfortunate word there because he has particular views about how to use that word, but um, it's a very natural word to use. Um, if that's true, it would be very strange to think that there could be something located within consciousness. Okay? And that, as Sartre understands it, is precisely what Husserl uh, is saying the transcendental ego is. So, the transcendental ego, remember, is supposed to explain the unity of consciousness. It has to be, then, such a thing. It can't be that it's something that we're conscious of. It's, an, uh, it's something that we have an experience of. It's an object of some intentional conscious state. Because if it were, then that experience of the transcendental ego would have to be unified with all the others. That is, we would have all these experiences of different things. 
a table, the chairs, different people in the room, you know, the feel of my feet in my shoes and so on, and the transcendental ego. But the transcendental ego experience would then have to be unified into this experiential whole with all the others. It can't be understood on that model. It has to be, and this is in fact what Husserl says, that the experience of the transcendental ego uh, is different from the experience of anything else. That is, everything else we experience as being um, an object of consciousness, the transcendental ego we experience as being a thing located on the other side of some conscious experience, that's metaphorical, on the other end of some conscious experience, as being the thing which is having those experiences. That is, um, it's located within consciousness, not, uh, uh, not something that we are conscious of. That's a kind of obscure thing to say, um, but it is, in fact, the sort of thing that Husserl says, and it is the reason that Sarch thinks that, um, that this is inconsistent with what he calls the law of consciousness. The nature of consciousness is just to be directed outwards, right? just to take, have an object, be awareness of something. Um, why is that um, uh, interesting? Well, I'm not going to sort of go into whether or not I think um, that's right. Just say one reason for thinking uh, that that's an interesting uh, that's interesting for contemporary debates about, debates about the nature of consciousness, um, which is that um, one contemporary debate about the nature of consciousness concerns whether or not there are so-called qualia. Um, qualia are qualities that uh, um, conscious states supposedly have that aren't a matter of the way the world is represented as being in consciousness. Um, so people often talk about um, tastes and uh, the the sort of the redness of red, um, the uh, the nastiness of pain, and so on. Uh, as being um, qualities of conscious experience that aren't a matter of the way the world seems to be. Now, there's a debate about whether there are such things. Um, and those who deny that there are such things often appeal to what they call the transparency of experience. And what they say is, look, if you introspect, if you uh, focus your attention on your own experiences, um, all you find are um, the ways the world seems to be. So if you're thinking about tastes, you taste some drink, what you find is the way the drink seems to be, not a way your experience seems to be. Okay? Um, what, if you focus on visual experience, what you find when you, think, you focus on colours and try and locate the uh, ineffable greenness of green, um, you just find a way that the chairs in the room seem to be. Right? That is, experiences transparent to its objects. Introspect on experience and all you get is the way the world seems around you seems to be. Um, now I take it that's precisely the claim that Sartre is making. That's a claim which is verified or not by our reflection on experience. Um, what's interesting about this um, is that the sorts of things that Sartre um, um, applies this idea to are very different from much of the contemporary debate. So much of the contemporary debate is really about what I just described. It's about whether or not there are qualia. Um, but um, 
there's just very little discussion of this with respect to self-consciousness, which is what I've um, been talking about, and which is what Sartre um, applies it to here. And he, he makes it very similar points about, for example, uh, the imagination. I mentioned right at the beginning an early book on the imagination. He says, look, it's very natural to suppose, in fact, he calls it an illusion, that um, when I imagine something, say I stand here and I imagine Nelson's column, I'm aware, like, visualize it. I'm aware of something in my mind, which is a, like a little picture of Nelson's column. But that's just an illusion, right? There is no such thing located in consciousness. Um, it doesn't make any sense to suppose that something could be located in consciousness in that way. There are no little pictures in the mind. Um, rather, I just have what I'm aware of is Nelson's column, but in a different way than sometimes I see it, sometimes I imagine it. Right? That's just a different way of being aware of the thing out there. Um, so his, he has this notion of the transparency of consciousness, which um, he applies to the, um, the, this debate about the transcendental ego or self-awareness. He applies to um, um, various other things, the emotions also he makes claims about based on this. Uh, and so for that reason, that's one of the reasons I think that there's sort of significant mileage to be had in sort of thinking slowly through some of the things that Sartre just rushes through really quickly, he has all these ideas, throws them out, but never really adequately explains them. Um, and, and that's sort of one of the reasons why I sort of picked to talk about this um, piece of writing here, um, because it's a piece of writing which people sometimes study, um, sometimes sort of for its own sake, to work out exactly what it was that Sartre thought, but it's very, it can be very difficult to sort of contextualise when, when you do that. Um, very difficult to work out exactly what, what the problems were that Sartre thought he was dealing with, rather than sort of treat it as an exercise in um, working out uh, exactly what Sartre's view was. Right? It's, it seems to me more fruitful to think about what were the issues that Sartre was trying to um, resolve uh, and then you sort of learn something about how to apply some of these ideas to contemporary debates. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much. Um, we have 25 minutes for discussion. So, any questions? Most welcome, yes, please. Hi. Um, I don't understand much. But can I ask a question? Is Sartre basically collapsing everything into intentionality? Um, I misunderstood. Yes. Basically. So, so the idea is that um, intentionality is directedness towards objects of consciousness. Um, and in effect... Um, Lots of the views that Sartre has, including loads of the sort of wilder existentialist stuff that you get later, are um, his attempt to work out the consequences of the claim that all there is to consciousness is intentionality. So there is no um, awareness of uh, like features of consciousness other than its pure directedness out towards the world. So, yes, I think that that's probably a good way to put it. 
I spent most of yesterday slogging through a bloody David Chalmers book on on mind, and Sartre, I don't think, writes even a footnote or uh, anything in the index. So, what happens to Sartre as a philosopher of mind? He he writes Lettre Norme, and then he writes lots of novels, and then he sort of flirts with Marxism. But as a, as a philosopher of mind, you know, is, does he hit the buffer somewhere? Does but, he lose interest in it? You know, as far, I mean, like I said, I'm not such a scholar, so my uh, answer to this is going to be pretty impressionistic. But as far as I can tell, it just completely disappears off the radar for a long time. Um, I'm talking specifically about the sort, of, the sort of tradition in which someone like Chalmers is writing. Sartre is just not on the radar at all until um, at the very least uh, the 1970s, but much more plausibly um, about 15 years ago. Um, And to be honest, I would say that now the vast majority of people like David Chalmers, analytic philosophers working on the philosophy of mind, um, have very little familiarity with any of these books by Sartre, except for the sort of listening to occasionally someone like me giving a talk on it, and then going, oh, that's very interesting, and then getting on with what they're doing. Um, So um, there has been this sort of resurgence of interest in the last, say, 15 to maybe 20 years, Um, but the focus has typically been on um, sort of like resuscitating Sartre for contemporary um, uh, audiences and it's not obvious whether much has happened beyond that uh, yet. Um, so in a- actually sort of applying Sartrean uh, insights to like contemporary problems. Every now and then that happens but it's pretty unusual. Um, so I think it just disappeared off the radar largely because, I guess, I don't know, speculation, largely because of his fame as a as a novelist, and the sort of the monolith being a nothingness. So if you study Sartre, you've got to go read Being a Nothingness, right? And then you just get caught up in thinking about anguish and freedom and bad faith, um, which are great topics, but they take what they do is they sort of take a lot of this more fundamental stuff about consciousness and they apply it to, um, like, you know, big topics that, um, that uh, people like to think about even if they don't think about themselves as doing philosophy mm. whereas you can't think about this stuff without thinking of yourself as doing philosophy sure. um, and, and it seems to me that there's so much of um, that stuff on freedom and so on is difficult to follow unless you sort of have this idea of what the, the basics are um, and, and that kind of got lost so discussions of Sartre are often it seems to me um, um, sometimes misguided because they um, they go straight for the hard stuff and um, sort of miss out the basic stuff about the nature of consciousness and mm. uh, um, sorry, another, another quick follow up. I don't want to, but I mean, it seems to me if you read, read a lot of recent philosophy, mind, I'm not a professional philosopher, but it's it's quite strongly infected by developments in things like cognitive science, artificial intelligence, and so on. A lot mm. of stuff about could you have a brain in a computer and all of that good stuff, um, and it seems to me that, you know, for example, I was struck when you were talking about you know, certain similarities between Dennett's 
Cartesian theatre and synchron, you know, the, the idea of synchron, synchronicity and pick up in, in, in consciousness. And I wondered if there's, you know, given the fact that I think a lot of this modern philosophy of mind, at least, in, you know, it really does seem to hit the buffers. We have this very large problem. It's a huge problem. We don't really know what to do about it. And, and a lot of the kind of phenomenological earlier stuff that you, you were talking about, is there sort of any prospects of a rapprochement or is they just going to pass it? Yeah, I think there is. So, um, I mean, interestingly, Dennett denies that there is any such thing as yes, the unity did. of consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Um, but crazily, <laughs> as far as I can tell, that's just bonkers. Um, that, so... Um, there is. So here's one way to think about it. Well, here's how I think about it, um, roughly speaking. Um, if the, the sort of um, the uh, central focus of the philosophy of mind, um, maybe somewhat less so now, but uh, the sort of thing that Chalmers is talking about, the sort of thing that's been happening for the last 30, 40 years, is how to understand how the mind fits into the physical universe. Right. right. What we know, that what there really is, is... Um, uh, loads of tiny, tiny things all whizzing around obeying various laws, and wow, there's like conscious experience. How does that fit in? That doesn't look like the sort of thing that you could explain by doing physics. But we sort of all think that everything can be explained by physics because physics is the most fundamental form of um, explanatory practice we've got. Um, so how do you understand how the mind fits in? And then there's various attempts to, to understand that, right? Um, how does phenomenology fit in? the thought would be this, that in order to understand whether or not something can be explained by science, or whether or not some bit of cognitive science really ad adequately um, um, accounts for some particular conscious phenomenon, um, you've got to understand what that conscious phenomenon is. Right? That is, you can't explain one thing in terms of another if you don't really know what that one thing is. Mm. What phenomenology is... Uh, amongst other things, perhaps, is a, a, an attempt to understand the structure of conscious experience. So if you want to try and explain um, uh, intention or perception, say, in terms of um, less basic than it, supposedly, um, by some bit of vision science or something, you need to understand what perceptual experience is, you need to understand what you're trying to explain away, um, and it would make a big difference if, for example, all there is to conscious experience is intentionality. Because then you've got your basic notion, and then you can try and understand what that is. Mm. Right? Um, so yeah, there is, I think, a significant uh, prospect for um, coming together of different sort of approaches to the mind in that respect. Because a lot of the sort of philosophy of mind that got done, I would say, even 20 years ago... Um, didn't really say anything necessarily about <laughs> what the mind was like. Mm. Right? It just sort of assumes we all know, and then and then says, and here's here's my explanation of it. Right, pain is C fibers firing, whatever the theory is. Um, and yet, uh, I, I would say that um, very much uh, like in, within the last twenty years or so, there has been a, a, an appreciation that that's not really good enough. Right, so you need to understand <coughs> if you put it this way, conscious experience from the inside before you can understand it from the outside. If I can just quickly add something, I thought that was a really great question because um, part of the whole reason for us to have a forum, of course, is precisely to bring together these different traditions of philosophy, right? So people sometimes, I think unfortunately, talk of 
about this division between analytical philosophy and continental philosophy of which phenomenology is a part and then often these traditions know very little of each other or interact little with each other and one of the things that we want to do is actually bring them together again because I think there is a lot of potential and scope for fruitful interaction including with cognitive sciences there's actually a lot of interesting stuff happening in particular with cognitive sciences and uh, for example in the context of the study of, of mental illnesses mm -hmm. where uh, researchers who try to understand schizophrenia for example appeal very much to phenomenology. Um, so there's a lot of stuff happening already, and I think will be more so in the future, I hope. Um, okay, yes, please. Um, you know, to back into this, you mentioned visual sciences, and it seems to me that there is a kind of underlying, this underlying analogy with visual experience in That is to say, if I, if I see an object, I'm not, I'm, I, I, I do... I am conscious of it, but I'm not thinking with my eyes when I, when it, so it doesn't lead back to some kind of, 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 of transcendental ego. Nevertheless, one would think that um, there is a consciousness which is other than just my being able to see things and take things in. So I wondered if you, in your reading of software, you've picked out this, um, this visual analogy, which I think is, exists in, in very many philosophers. I don't know where it breaks off. But I do also know that on the, um, as it were, the continental side, as on the more speculative side, um, Sartre was part of a, um, a movement of continental philosophy that almost coveted blindness, that became very suspicious of, of, um, of the visual analogy, the idea of the light, the Cartesian, uh, on the Cartesian idea of reason and light together. So I wanted to come into contact with that. And it in fact, what you've been telling us. And secondly, could you comment on what I think is the the most important thing in your paper, actually, is the opacity of the object. Because that puts consciousness in, in a very strange place in the world. Okay. Um, so, uh, there's lots in that. I, I sort of agree with everything that you said. Um, there is a focus on the visual in uh, vast swaths of philosophy, generally speaking. Um, every philosopher of mine's favourite sense is vision. Um, and sometimes it's difficult to know why. Uh, in part, I think that um, the explanation is perhaps that vision is the sense that gives us the most information about the world quickly. Right? Um, vision is a really important sense. Um, in some respects, it's also the easiest to theorize about. Um, one worry about the concentration of, on vision in this present context, exactly what you, the sort of thing you point to would be that, look, if you focus on vision whereby there's a sort of a, a nice analogy that you drew, right? You, you, see, you see the things in front of you. You don't see your eye. Right? The, there's nothing about the way the world looks that it tells you that uh, there's, there's an eye, as an EYE, which is doing any seeing. Uh, you can sort of think of such as idea of like, there's no awareness of the self as the thing which is doing, no explicit awareness of the self as the thing which is doing any experiencing, sort of on that sort of a model, right? If you think about different sensory modalities, things might look very different. And an obvious one to pick on is the awareness that we have of our own bodies, okay? So, if you, like, I, I have a, an awareness of my own body. I'm aware of, for example, I'm not looking, but I can tell that my legs are straight, um, I can tell that my hands are moving and so on, right? Um, how, does, how do we understand that sort of thing? 
on this sort of a picture? Well, we think, well, it's, it's an awareness of an object, of a thing, right? That's my body. But you might also think it's an awareness of a thing which is also the subject of the experience, me. Um, why would we think that? Well, um, it's kind of natural to think that we're <coughs> human animals and uh, embodied creatures. Um, but sort of, you might sort of have a more like, theoretical reason for it. You might think, well, look, what are the features of my body that I'm aware of through bodily experience? Well, things like pains, right? I've got pain in my toe, I've got an itch on my back and so on. But they're mental things. Pain is a archetypal mental psychological property. So my body, the object that I'm aware of, perhaps that's presented to me in experience as the subject of experience, right? Subject of experience is the thing that has the pain. Um, so that, for example, presents a real sort of serious challenge, I think, to this idea that there's no inner awareness of the self. And it's notable that um, Sartre sort of struggled in his account of the body that he gives, not in this book, in uh, Being and Nothingness. Um, he really struggles with this, and I think, as a result, gives a somewhat implausible view. Um, and and what you at least one way of reading this debate is that um, one of the criticisms that um, his sort of colleague Merleau-Ponty makes of him is exactly that. Right? He's got no adequate account of how we understand our, our awareness of our own bodies um, because the way in which we're aware of our own bodies is as the subject of experience, precisely what Sartre denies that we have an awareness of. Um, what, what else was it he said? So, yes, I sort of agree with that. I'm not sure that... I ultimately think that that's a convincing objection to Sartre, but it's certainly a very serious one. Um, the stuff about... Yeah, so, like, distrust of the visual, uh, sort of concentration on the visual. Uh, yes, there is that. Um, and um, I don't really have very much to say about it, apart from to sort of note that um, I think it hasn't really... Um, um, sort of influence the sort of um, I'm not saying that this is right or wrong the sort of uh, philosophy that um, I've been doing here um, so there is this sort of tradition of thinking about uh, there's, there's, there's something wrong with the focus on uh, the visual it uh, in, involves objectifying things in a certain um, uh, uh, problematic way and I think that that just um, has typically been um, that debate has carried carried on, sort of uh, in a way that's uh, completely independent of the sort of philosophy of mind that actually does this concentration on the visual, which is kind of our last thing. Opacity of the object. What does he mean by that? Um, well, at least on the like, just at, at, he means at least um, the, just the literal meaning. You can't see through them, right? So when I when I can see. Uh, this thing in front of me, it's presented to me from one particular angle. So the front of it occludes the back of it. Okay? Um, it's opaque. Right? Um, so it just literally means that. How does that differ from experience? Well, um, well, one of the consequences of that is that I can take different perspectives on things. So I see the top of this table, but if I go like that, I can see stuff that I couldn't previously see. You can take a different perspective on something. 
And perceptual experience or conscious states more generally aren't like that. Um, you cannot take, uh, other than in metaphorical terms, you cannot take a different perspective on your visual experience of the table. You can take a different perspective on the table, but you can't take a different perspective on m m the way the table looks to me. It doesn't really make sense. Um, so in that sense, it, we can just understand quite sort of simply the idea that the objects of experience are opaque. What does that mean? They're things that you can, you, if you like, stand back from and take allow you to take perspectives on. And the self-consciousness isn't like that. Um, at least when we think of this is all in brackets because anyone who's read further in the book knows that he's, he qualifies a lot of these claims when he talks about the transcendent self um, but with respect to what I was talking about I think at least that's one way of understanding what's going on there Okay, I know there's lots of lots more questions I'm, I'm trying to take them in the order that I saw them so one, two, and then three if I could ask you to be brief in your questions and also brief in your answers before we've got ten minutes left Okay, so right. This is a bit peripheral, but it's the use of the word n now. What for a human being is the time span of now? How many items of thought does or can it contain? And is its time spread affected by the relative speed of individual metabolisms? Because you say now, but no, you know. Yeah. That's a very good question. It's a very good question. Retrospective thoughts. Look, uh, it, it's a very good question, and it's certainly not something that um, Sartre offers an answer to, or is really in a position to offer an answer to. Um, so the, the stuff on time that I sort of briefly went through um, ultimately comes from William James. Um, so William James um, had a theory that included what he called the specious present. And the specious present is now, but it's got duration, okay? So, such that um, my experience of what's going on now um, includes, like, movement from one state to another, right? That is, like, when I see something moving across um, my field of vision, um, it can be, all of that can be now, right? Um, now, he claimed that you could measure the specious present, um, and he gave a rather implausibly long uh, no. time scale in terms of seconds. Somebody said somewhere or other that it was about three seconds containing six items. Well, uh, I, so, I don't know what the length of the specious present no, I mean, is. I, I, in fact, I'm slightly suspicious that there is such a thing as the specious present. I take it that, insofar as it's possible to pin down Sartre's view, um, it would have to be pinned down by referring to Husserl's view, which at least here, he seems to just take on board without critical comment. And Husserl's view seems to be that now is extensionless. Now is an instant in the strict sense that it has no temporal duration at all. Um, so that when I was talking about um, the primal impression, what's happening now, that's, um, that's not something that you can divide up into smaller segments of time, as you could if it was the specious present, which is say three seconds long um, now that um, brings with it issues of its own I think um, so which mirror questions about physical reality how do you how do you build up time out of a series of extent, temporarily unextended points 
um, and or space out of a series of spatially unextended points. Um, so how do you build up an experience across time from a series of experiences at times that don't themselves take up any time? Um, maybe there's a puzzle about that. But I, I, I suspect that um, probably, at least at this point in his career, Sartre is assuming that um, now is an extensionless instant. Um, but I, I, I'm not 100% sure. I don't think he says what his view is. Well, well, perhaps that's right. I, I guess um, it probably... It, there's a sense in which it wasn't really on his agenda. So um, what he's trying to do is describe um, the nature of conscious experience from the inside, right, from the first personal perspective. Um, and the question, as you posed it, um, is think about the now as it's experienced. What portion of objective, real, actual time does it take up? Um, and that's a, that's a good question, but I suspect that I mean, at least one way of responding to that is to say, I don't care. What I, what I care about, that's a good question for a psychologist, but not for a phenomenologist, right? Phenomenologist is interested in just um, the structure of experience as experienced, not questions about how to map it onto objective stuff. Um, it's not entirely clear that that's a, an, a, a wholly satisfying response. Um, but, yeah, it'll do. Sorry, sorry, short answer. Short answers. You gave a quote from Sartre that everything in consciousness is is clear and lucid. That seems to be false because consciousness can be deceived. And it seems to me that you cannot be deceived and clear about the same thing at the same time. Good. Um, yes. And, of course, if you're familiar with it, he sort of devotes a chapter of of being an nothingness to that issue, which is the chapter on bad faith. So um, he holds this view that consciousness is transparent or uh, uh, translucent. Um, it's it's not entirely clear that that is that rules out the possibility that we can be confused about stuff. But he certainly thinks that that there's nothing going on in the mind that you're not aware of in some sense. He certainly thinks that. And of course, then that raises a puzzle about um, self-deception, right? How can we um, deceive ourselves, given that we're aware of what we're doing, in in order to be deceiving ourselves? And he sort of um, spends a significant amount of time and comes up with this rather elaborate and very interesting view about how that's possible, given what he thinks of as um, the lucidity of um, experience, which is supposed to apply across the board. So, um, yes, I agree that that's an issue which at least he thinks he um, uh, manages to address. I'm not sure if that answered exactly the question. Well, I don't know, it's, it's quite difficult to... It, it still seems to be false on, on Sartre's part. Can I, can I just um, interrupt? But the fact of having intentionality and intentional object, it doesn't mean to say that you are right about what what you're seeing, what you can say. Oh, of course, yes. It's just that there is basically intentionality. And if you were talking, talk, um, you can disagree with what other, other people would say about about this thing. And that's perfectly okay. We don't have to be right just because we have consciousness. 
Yeah, agreed, agreed. So that would be one way, maybe that's what you had in mind, that, that, that uh, consciousness could be confused, which would be, it just gets stuff wrong, right? Um, something looks green to me when it's really pink, or um, we have experiences that are misleading with respect to the way the world is. Um, agreed. I think that there's, there's no... Um, there are worries about that sort of stuff, but I don't think that they really bite here, right? The idea that consciousness is transparent isn't, or clear and everything in consciousness is clear and lucid, isn't the thought that it can't lead us astray, um, but rather that um, the nature of consciousness itself is, um, is not hidden in the same way that the nature of uh, like paper or water, right? We, find we have to do science to work out the water's made out of H2O. There's no um, scientific explanation that can, sort of scientific account that can tell you what, in a certain sense, the nature of consciousness is, right? Because it's there for us all to see, right? To describe what the sort of structural feature features of conscious experience are. So I think perhaps that is also relevant. But clearly there's still loads and loads and loads of open questions. Unfortunately, I'm afraid we've just run out of time. I apologize to you and to everybody else who still wanted to ask a question. Uh, but please join me in thanking Joel for this great presentation.